Dear Lord, we thank You for this time together. We thank You, Lord, that You have offered us grace and forgiveness through that grace. Lord, I pray this morning that You would open the eyes of our hearts that we might receive from You. Speak through the power of Your Word. and Let us receive Your hope and become instruments of hope for Your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray all of these things. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. And we're going to be here for a while, for the next few weeks. And so, I invite you to begin to read through the book of 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel. Uh, as you read 1 Samuel, I think you will glean a lot but it will also help you, as we study this book, uh, to be aware of some of the things that are going on. Uh, we're not going to go verse by verse through uh, all of these chapters, but we are going to hit uh, the major points of the book. And so if you would begin to read First Samuel, uh, you can read a chapter a week, and uh, you'll be well versed, and uh, I think this will be a more meaningful series if you'll begin. It's also a fascinating book. I, I think it's just... Uh, uh, very fascinating. Of course, you see the story of David, and uh, one of the most beloved stories uh, for all children is the story of David and Goliath, and we'll get there uh, in the weeks to come. But I want to begin to understand the, the time period even before David comes on the scene and what is occurring and what's transpiring in history at this point. Matter of fact, I think it's important that we understand the book of Judges, which is uh, basically this book comes right after that time period. In the book of Judges, we know that there, the, the cycle of sin is basically the picture that you see in the book of Judges. Uh, you see the rebellion, uh, then you see kind of the retribution, uh, then you see the repentance, and then you see the restoration. And this happens seven different times. You see that cycle seven times through the book of Judges. And, and in fact, that's what's occurring right here as we come on the scene in 1 Samuel. Uh, God is still ruling His people through Judges. It's a theocracy. But we'll see soon here in the book of 1 Samuel that the people want to go to a king like the other nations. We see right here, we'll see the story of four individuals. First, we'll see Hannah that we'll talk about today. And then we see Hannah who has a son named Samuel. And Samuel, in fact, is the last judge that the Hebrews will have. It's the last judge that the nation of Israel will experience because they'll go to a king, which is Saul, right after Samuel, because they wanted to be like the other nations, and then comes David. Now, when we look at Samuel, we also see not only the last judge, we see, in fact, the first prophet of Scripture. The first prophet of the Bible is actually Samuel, and he is the last judge, and then we see that he's a priest. In a sense, he is what we call a foreshadowing of the Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king, He's a judge which, in effect, was the king of that day. He was the highest ruling official of that day under the theocracy that God has established. So we see a lot of things in Samuel's life that help us to understand and point toward the Messiah who would come. And also, as we look at this book, I think it's important for us to also see the picture that Hannah is somewhat a representative of the nation of Israel. We'll see that the Bible will describe her as one who is barren, not able to have children. 
And this is a very difficult concept, particularly in this day and age. And the reason it's so uh, dire is because, number one, uh, it, the culture says this is the primary purpose for women in this day. And it's not, we're, we're not here to, to judge and decide whether that's right or wrong at this time period. It's just a fact at this period of time. That's what the culture describes. Just like the culture today says you need to be beautiful and thin and rich and all these other kind of things, all these other messages, the culture in that day said the primary purpose of women is to have children. And matter of fact, their whole culture and society was built upon the premise of the fertility of women. You would not exist as a tribe if you didn't have children, if you didn't have multiple children. Your tribe, so to speak, uh, became strongest by sheer numbers. Your nation uh, was dependent upon the fertility of women. So if you were a very small tribe, then another tribe would uh, probably at some point at least attack you and probably overtake you if you didn't have the numbers to fight them off. Not only that, the economy... It, most people were uh, farmers or something of that nature, and they were at least dependent upon the labor of their children. If they were going to uh, succeed and have anything of of a, a emphasis of extra money, it was going to be completely dependent upon them having multiple children who could work in whatever field or whatever trade they had established. And last of all, for, for a woman, uh, that was their social security program. I mean, children, that's who's going to take care of you. I mean, there's no home, there's no other place to, for you to go. When you get older, you are completely dependent upon your children. And if you have no children, it is a very hopeless and scary future that's ahead of you. You know, today we have retirement accounts and social security, and those are great things. But those things did not exist in the time of Hannah. And so you can see the desperation that she is experiencing and feeling. So let's jump right into verse 2. And first one, I read it earlier, and everybody just kind of goes, okay, because it's all the names, uh, Ramathim and Zuphite and Elkanah and the Ephraimites. And then we come to verse 2, okay? He's talking about Elkanah right here, okay? We're steering the story of Elkanah who is married to Hannah, all right? So Elkanah... Uh, is married to Hannah, and then it says in verse 2, he had two wives, one called Hannah and the other called uh, Penia or Penia. Okay? He's got two wives. Now, right there, uh, when you see that right there, you have to take notice of that. And a lot of times people will, will make a ridiculous statement and go, well, you know, the Bible advocates uh, polygamy. The Bible says it's okay. It, it never says that. It, it deals with the sin of mankind, but it never says, you need to go out and get an extra wife. As a matter of fact, every time you see it in the Bible, it's like a complete disaster. I mean, it never goes well for the people who have more than one woman in the, whole, in the family, okay? <clears throat> you can go back to Genesis 2, male and female, he created them. That was God's design, but man's sinfulness, uh, they took, there were several times they took on extra wives, and it just, I mean, ask Abraham, it was a bad deal when Hagar came on uh, with Sarah. I mean, you can just imagine how, how it goes, okay? And, and, and don't even get me started with David and Samuel and what occurred with them, okay? So it, every time you see it depicted, there's always a negative story. Remember, the Bible is descriptive and prescriptive. It's describing something that you really don't want to do. And here's a great example right here. I mean, if you think your family is dysfunctional at Thanksgiving, you look around, well, no, I can't believe I'm with these group of people. Just read this right here, and you should feel better about your family unit, okay? So, let's pick up here and see how this dysfunctional family is doing, all right? So, he's got two wives. 
And one has children. Uh, Penny has children, but Hannah has not. It may have been, some scholars speculate, that because Hannah could not have children, much like Sarah, that he takes another wife. Uh, whatever the reason, uh, it was a bad idea. And so here we are. Year after year, the man went up from the town to worship. We see he's a man who uh, is committed to worship, is committed to the worship of God, and sacrifices to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Now, it's at Shiloh because at this point, uh, Jerusalem is not under uh, the Hebrews' control, okay? They have not, under David, David will take the town of Jerusalem. But right now, the tabernacle is located in Shiloh. Uh, and there are two priests there who are the sons of Eli, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli who were the priests. And whenever the day came uh, for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, uh, Peniah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Now, you see uh, the picture of, uh, of Israel here. Because of their rebellion, God has closed off the blessings. We see that in the life of Hannah. The, the blessing has been closed off, and she's symbolic. She's a picture of the nation of Israel here. And the Bible tells us that um, also she's chosen. She is favored, and her husband gives her a double portion. You, you kind of see the typology that's given there. As we continue, the Bible tells us, and because the Lord had closed her womb... Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Now, the Hebrew word there, irritate, uh, actually is also a word that's used for thunder, to roar. So that voice, the same voice of the culture she is telling her, whom obviously she's jealous because the Bible has just told us that she's fa- that her uh, Hannah is favored. So what does Penea do? She continues to roar and to remind her that she is barren. It's like that voice of the culture. Every time she turns on the TV, every time you see a billboard, that message that's being sent, if you don't look a certain way, if you don't have certain items, then you are not of value. And she hears that roaring constantly. Hannah, whose name means grace, the grace of God, continually hears that roaring and that thunder, and it's depressing her. Matter of fact, it not only pains her, we can almost see, make a case if we wanted to, uh, that she is at the depression point. And the Bible tells us this went on year after year. Another reason the Bible condemns polygamy. The Bible is not in favor of polygamy and Common sense should tell you. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her still until she wept and could not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? You know, husbands, this is probably a good place right here for us to remember what doesn't work, okay? Um, Hannah, you got me. Oh, now I'm really depressed. I mean, Hannah, look here. I'm here. I love you. I'm giving you double portions of food. Isn't that enough? And it's not. I mean, she, you know, and again, there's a message to be told, to be preached about uh, us having family and the importance of our spouses. But here is something that uh, she is really burdened about. It is something that she really dreams about. 
And, and while we do find a connection with our spouses and we do find encouragement, uh, can I say this? Really, our spouse is never our purpose, our ultimate purpose in life. It's to love God with all that we are while making more and better followers of Christ. And God helps mold us into the image of Christ through our spouses and through our children. Okay, And we are commanded to love them and to give them priority in relationship. But they're not our sole purpose for life. Okay, I think we all understand that. And I, I think very few people try to do that. But uh, Elkanah, I, think, I, I think he's grabbing for straws and he's saying, Hey, what about me? Am I not enough? And, she, and while he is very important to her and there's love for her, she, she still is struggling. And, you know, there was probably a better way for him to say that, quite frankly. So, as we continue here, we see a, a woman who is struggling. Uh, we see a man who is grasping for straws to try to make her feel better. He's trying to appeal to the psychology of her mindset. But we see in verse 9, Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Robert Alter, who is actually a Jewish Hebrew scholar, says that any time you see that term in the Hebrew, to rise or to stand up, that is a Hebrew idiomatic expression. So it, basically what's happening there is someone is determining to make a stand or to say, I'm going a new direction. They're, they're making an uh, active statement right there. They're going to make a change or a transition. Something is about to happen. So I'm about to do something different than what I've been doing. So that's actually what's occurring right here in this passage. So the Bible says that when she had finished eating and drinking in Silo, she stood up. All right. I've been listening to the voice of the culture. I've even been listening to my sweet husband. <clears throat> but that's not sufficient. She says now we'll see that she's going to take it to God. She's going to go to the temple and she's going to pray. She's going to take this to God Almighty Himself. She says, now Eli, now the Bible tells us now, Eli the priest was sitting in a chair at the door of the temple. And in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. So we've seen Hannah's pain. Now we see Hannah's prayer. And she made a vow or a promise. O Lord God, if you will only look upon your servant's memory and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. So what is she in fact doing here? Well, you could become what we call a Nazarite by voluntarily, it's basically a voluntary minister, so to speak, a lifestyle in which your lifestyle is supposed to point other people toward God and the glory of God. But parents could also make a vow for their children. And this one is even more significant because not only is she making a Nazarite vow, but she is committing her child, if God chooses to give her one, to God. And we'll see in a few moments at a very early age. So... Hannah comes to this place where the culture voice, she's not going to listen to it. She's not going to just try to fix it by making herself feel better psychologically. She comes and she pours her heart. We'll see the scripture here in a moment. She pours her heart out to God. 
She pours herself out to God and says, God, you know the desire of my heart. You know what I've desired. But I've come to the place where I recognize, God, that even should you give me this gift, I will give it back to you. I will offer it back to you just as your servant Abraham offered Isaac. I will offer to you. That's where I've come to. So, Lord, if you choose to do that, this is my promise that I give to you. It's, it's not a bargain. God, if you do this, then I'll do this. She's not getting into bargains. She's making a promise. She's making a vow to God. She's come to a place where it's not going to be about the voices that I hear, but about the Spirit of the living God. It's the only place that I can find my purpose and my fulfillment in life. And so she comes in that manner. And the Bible says that as she made this vow to the Lord, the Bible tells us in verse 12 that she kept on praying to the Lord. And Eli observed her mouth. And Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of the wine! Basically, Eli has been having a tough time in his culture, okay? Church has not been going well for Eli. Uh, The Bible has just been telling us that everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. He's used to a lot of moral depravity. And so this is probably not something that's completely removed from his thought process. Uh, Great. Now I've got a drunk one in here. Uh, Because typically, when you'd come to the tabernacle, you would pray aloud. That was typically how uh, the Hebrews would pray But in this instance, she's simply moving her lips and she's shaking. And so he thinks, great, she's drunk. But that's not it at all. She's crying out to God. She's pouring her heart out, the Bible tells us. And we pick up there. And she says, not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled and I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. We see the pain, we see the prayer, we see the promise, we see the pouring out of her soul to God Almighty. God, everything that I am, everything I hope to be, I give to You. I cry out to You. I pour myself out to You, O Lord. And Eli answered, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of Him. Now, Eli is not a prophet. Eli doesn't know that God will grant that to him. It's not a special gift that he's been given, but he gives a prayer of hope. A prayer of hope. And he says, I pray that God would give you what you've asked for. I pray that God would give you that blessing. And we see what that prayer of hope does in the heart of one who's pouring her spirit out and her soul out to God Almighty. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Then the Bible says that early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. And Elkanah lay with her, and the Lord remembered her. So we see the pain, we see the prayer, we see the promise, and then we see the worship. She chooses to take that prayer of hope and to believe that God is working in her circumstances. Though she does not understand, though she does not know, she's not been given uh, she's not been given a guarantee, but she's come to that place where God, I'm placing it in your hands, and yet I will worship you. 
And so she washes her face. She moves on. She, remember how we talked about she has arise. She, she gets up and she determines she's going to move forward. And so, in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Hope is given to her. Let's skip down to verse 24. And after he was weaned, speaking of Samuel the boy, and by the way, when they wean children in, in this culture and in this time, it wasn't like today where we do a year or two years. So it wasn't like, you know, they brought an 18-month-old baby uh, up to the to the temple. Typically, uh, that period would go from anywhere from four, sometimes to even six years. So probably four to five years old, probably about five. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's still cultures today uh, that continue to uh, nurse children that long. But in, in this particular time, uh, it certainly would have been a minimum of three years, probably four or five years old. Uh, matter of fact, some commentators would even date it later than that, would, would be older than that, but I doubt that's the case. But nevertheless, she, after she had weaned the boy, she took him with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And when they had slaughtered the bull, they, they brought the boy to Eli, and he said to him, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. And I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to you. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Remember those reasons to have children for security? I give him to you, Lord. I will not place my security in my son culturally, so people will know, here's my son, here he is. She won't be taking him to the five and six-year-old birthday parties or the kindergarten first day or whatever it is. She has committed him to God. It's a huge gift. It is a huge offering, so to speak, of sacrifice. It's a huge commitment that she's made, and she's going to come each year and see him now. And so she's not getting all those things the culture would say you're going to obtain. He's not going to be taken on the family business. He's not going to be living there in the state or the, or the home or the farm. He's not going to be helping them uh, gather crops or perpetuate the trade. She's letting him go. Huge message here. She's letting him become the instrument of hope for the nation. Now, does she understand all that? Absolutely. She doesn't know all that. She just knows that God has blessed her and has been faithful. And she has made a promise. It's very significant when you stop and think about it. You know, we were, Tyler uh, McHugh and I were a couple of weeks ago in the Dominican Republic. And while we were there, I'll never forget this, um, one of the places we went, one of the villages into the sugar cane fields we go in, into, and they had just gotten water there. And it was a big deal. They have water now. And through an interpreter, we're, we're talking to them. We're asking them, how are things going here, and asking for their response. And I'll, I'll never forget this lady of Haitian descent. She, she's standing there and with another lady and, and through a, an interpreter. We're asking them, what, what, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you that now you have water? She goes, it. Because we, we know that God is here. We know that God sees us and hears us. And she says, 
we now have food. We have a roof or shelter. Our kids can go to a school and we have water. And then she made this statement. She goes, what else could we ask for? What else could we want? You know, and as Americans, we're going, well, there's a whole lot of things you could want. There's an air conditioner and there's a car. How about a decent house to live in? How about running water? How about a toilet? You know, I mean, we could go through all these things that, you know, we think you got to have, buddy. I mean, like, uh, that's ridiculous. How could someone live? And she's going, what else could I want? What else could I need? (laughs) That's kind of where Hannah's come to. I've experienced the grace of God. And everything that I ever needed, God has supplied, and I will trust Him for the rest of my days for the rest. It's really pretty amazing when you stop and think about it. And through Hannah's pain, which she had not had that pain, she would have never prayed, God, give whatever you give to me, I will give back to you. She wouldn't have made a promise like that. And if she had a promise that, then Samuel's not raised in the tabernacle. And what does Samuel become? The voice of God to that nation. He becomes the first prophet, the final judge and the priest. He's the one who anoints King David from whom the line of the Messiah will come. The seed of Abraham. The seed of David. Hannah didn't know all that. She just knew that she was dying in pain. And she cried out to God and made a promise. And God used her pain. He redeemed her pain and her time. Let me tell you, close with this. Let me tell you the final story. I, as my wife said, one of the greatest sermons she's ever heard was last Sunday right here in this pulpit. And it wasn't me. Um, and that was no surprise. But it was actually... Um, it was actually at the funeral. Uh, Jennifer Drum, who had a two-year-old daughter, and um, she, I remember if I got the word when I was in the Dominican Republic, she wanted me to do the funeral, so I prepared on the way over here, all the way as we flew back and got here, and then we did it Sunday afternoon. And I, I got the message that she wanted to speak, and I was thinking, oh, man, a mother speaking at her child's funeral. I was thinking, that's not a good idea. And I, I, so I said, you know, let's... Let's think that through. Are you sure you want to do that? And she's positive. That's what she wants to do. Okay. So I did my little sermonette and spoke, and then she got up and shared. And she read a passage. And ironically, it was a passage that I'd looked at, and I thought, oh, I don't know if that's appropriate for this time. I don't know if that's the message I'm going to do, because most of her family didn't know Christ. And she read this passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 5. Now, we're, again, we're talking about a, a young mother a mother who's about to start teaching school, a mother who has just lost her daughter, her two-year-old daughter. And this is the verse, the passage that she reads. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulation, knowing that our tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance about proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint Romans 5, 2 through 5. And she shared with most of her family who does not know Christ. She goes, I know most of you don't believe this, but she shares the gospel and she shares the hope that she has. 
in what I personally would deem the most tragic moment of life. And she shares of the hope that is within her. Because it's not hope that's built on the situation, but the revelation that God has given her. That God has given us. That there is an eternity. There is a purpose. There is a place. There is a hope that God has granted to all who call upon His name and believe in Him and put their hope in Him. Hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, His righteousness. That's what her hope is built on. And that one day, she will be with her daughter again for eternity. But until that day, she will rest in the hope that God redeems pain. That God uses our difficulties and our tragedies in life to bring Himself glory. That all things truly work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. I don't even know what else to say other than to say this, that she has taken the position that God will be use me as an instrument of hope. He will use even this tragedy to be an instrument of hope. And so God, I want you to use it even right now in my death, most desperate moment. I see that in Hannah. I see that in Jennifer. I, I, I've seen that in others. And you talk about preaching the gospel. You're talking about realness of faith. Now, here's the question. Are you determined to be an instrument of hope? We all have pain that we could talk about at some point in our life, but it doesn't always even have to be pain. This may be a good time. This may be a, just a kind of regular time in your life. Here's a time to be an instrument of hope. And, and if you need some ways, I'll, I'll give you a couple. God may already have something on your heart that you just need to step forward with, but you don't want to make an, you want to make a difference. We have children in our church um, who don't have parents, and there are plenty of opportunities over here to serve right now. Some need one-on-one, and you will be the voice in their life right now, spiritually, in a lot of ways. Uh, some of you might want to consider sponsoring a child. And that's, as you see that list over there, I, I had the chance to see my sponsored child, and I told you about that last week. And I see the impact. As a matter of fact, he's in a, a, an area that age have, has heavily affected, and he's actually identified as a hope child. Because if assistance doesn't come, there's, there's not a lot of hope. And we saw that in a lot of the teenage boys there. You just kind of see that emptiness and that hollowness. There's opportunity I'm trying to suggest to you. It's not that I'm waiting for God to give me a ministry so I can preach or sing or whatever the heck it is you think you're supposed to be doing. God wants to use you as an instrument of hope. And it may be in the life of a child. It may be in the life of a neighbor. I I don't know. But I can tell you this. It's not that opportunities are not available. The question is, am I responding? Am I saying, yes, Lord, whatever that means? What about you? Have you determined and committed and surrendered to being an instrument of hope? Have you surrendered to the only hope that is given to the nations, which is Jesus Christ and His salvation? Then I invite you to do that today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time together. Thank You for the hope that has been given to us. 
through the salvation that you have given. And Lord, I pray right now that you would uh, speak to our hearts, you would move in us, that you would use us, Lord, both in our church, in our community, and in our families. And Lord, I pray that you would make us instruments of hope this day as we surrender to your will. Lord, if there's one that doesn't know you, I pray that you draw them by the power of your Spirit this day. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.